Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and we will read verses 145 through 152. Again, Psalm 119, beginning at verse 145, and this is a prayer by the psalmist, and may this be our prayer this morning as we anticipate the Word of God. I cried with all my heart, answer me, O Lord, I will observe your statutes. I cried to you, save me and I shall keep your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help, I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. Those who follow after wickedness draw near. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Pray with me this morning. Our great God in heaven, as we have just sung, we are so wonderfully reminded again that you are now, as always, seated upon your throne. You are the God of absolute sovereign authority. There is no one like you. You are exalted over the nations. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You rule the entire universe with your unlimited power. And even now, you sustain the entire world with your power. It is by your power that we draw even our breath. It is by your power that we live and move and have our being. And it is by your power that we are saved through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, though you are exalted, though you are high and lifted up, though you are sovereign in absolute authority and majesty, though you are transcendent, as the psalmist prayed, we also pray this morning that we know that you are near that you are intimate, that you are a father to us, that we are your sons and your daughters, that you are so near that you actually indwell us in the person of your spirit, and that you are here among us, that you are with us, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. You are the faithful God. Father, we love you, we delight in you, we adore you. We want to know you more than how we know you now. Our cry, O oh God, this morning is that you would feed us with your word. We wait for your words, we anticipate your words to us. 
Father, we are so humbled and so grateful that you have given to us your very word. And that as we open the pages of the Bible and as we read, it is you speaking to us. Father, may you help us. May you revive us. May you strengthen us. May you give us the ability, O God, to delight in your truth, to obey your truth. Father, we thank you not only for the written word, but for the living word, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate word. We thank you as we gather here today on this Lord's Day that we celebrate once again the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your only Son into the world, into the sinful fallen world, to be born of a woman and to be born under the law that he might redeem those under the law. We thank you, O God, that you have taken all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our iniquity, and you placed them upon Christ on the cross, and that you poured out all of your wrath and your judgment against your own Son as if he had committed our sins, so that we could gather here this morning, accepted by you, Because of Christ. Father, we thank you for the life of Christ, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that even now as he has ascended into heaven, that he is at your right hand. That you have given him the name that is above every name. And that he rules, having in his possession all authority in heaven and upon earth. And that one day he will come back to this world. And he will make all things right. He will establish justice and righteousness in this world. He will establish your kingdom in this world. Of which we will be a part. Father, we thank you that our salvation is eternal And that we belong to you forever by grace. Father, may we sing with tremendous joy and tremendous depth in our hearts in light of the gospel. May you be with us. May you help every person that is here. May you minister to each person, Lord, as only you can do to the heart. May you be our peace. May you be our joy. May you be our strength. May you be our counselor. We love you and we delight in you. And that is because you first loved us. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm grateful to God to be back with you this morning after being out last week due to a kidney stone. As Huey said, I was between a rock and a hard place. And I'm glad not to be in that anymore. 
by the grace of God. I'm also grateful to you as my church family for your prayers and for your calls and emails, all of your expressions of kindness to me. They are uh, very precious to my heart. Well, it is with great joy that I ask you to once again open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This was the message I had planned to give last time, but in God's providence, we will look at it this Lord's Day. We are continuing in our series on the divine mandate for expository preaching. We are looking at part four. We will look specifically together at verses three and four, but I want to read verses one through five because they form a unit of thought. Follow along as I read the word of God. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Last time we introduced our message with John Calvin as one of the greatest examples of somebody who lived out the divine mandate for expository preaching. And this morning I want to continue to refer to John Calvin. In order to fully appreciate Calvin's devotion to the Word of God, you have to understand the historical and the spiritual context of 16th century Europe in which he lived. It was a time of immense spiritual darkness that was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. It was a time in which the medieval age was coming to an end, and yet it was still very dominant. The medieval age is also known as the Dark Ages with good reason, especially with regard to the Bible and theology. If you were to pursue a theological degree or theological training at Calvin's time, you would not so much study the Bible as much as you would study scholastic medieval theology. From the writings of such men as Duns Scotus, William Ockham, Gabriel Bile, and Peter Lombard. When Calvin was just 11 years old, his father sent him to Paris to study and to prepare for the priesthood. He studied at the University of Paris, which was the greatest medieval theological school at that time. And if anything was true of scholastic medieval theology, it was its lack of clarity with regard to the Bible and theology. In fact, it seemed that the more complex and the more confusing, the better. So the theological institutions of Calvin's day were spiritually dark, but so too was the church. The standard translation of the Bible at that time was the Latin Vulgate, which means most people didn't have access to the Bible because most people didn't speak or understand Latin. 
And so Calvin's day was one in which the light of Scripture had been deeply buried underneath the teachings and the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. As a result, one of the mottos of the Reformation was this, post tenebrous lux, that is a Latin phrase meaning after darkness, light. After darkness, light. John Calvin said, God's loving kindness to us was wonderful. When the pure gospel emerged out of that dreadful darkness in which it had been buried for so many ages. End quote. Beloved, the glory of the Protestant Reformation was the rediscovery of the biblical gospel. It was the discovery, the rediscovery of biblical truth, which was achieved in large measure through the preaching, the expository preaching of John Calvin. The significance and the influence of Calvin's ministry is so great that it is frankly very difficult to measure In fact, the influence of Calvin is what produced an entire Protestant denomination, the Presbyterian denomination. Technically speaking, Calvin did not start Presbyterianism, but it came about as a result of the teaching and the theology of John Calvin. One of the thousands of people across Europe who sought refuge in Geneva Under Calvin's ministry was a man by the name of John Knox from Scotland. You no doubt are familiar with John Knox. Having studied under Calvin for a period of time, Knox would eventually return to his native Scotland where he would continue with the work of Reformation there. His most famous quote is actually a prayer, Give me Scotland or I die. That prayer was a passionate plea to God for the gospel to advance among his native countrymen. The ministry of John Knox was so powerful, beloved, that the Roman Catholic Queen of Scotland, known as Mary the Queen of Scots, she is reputed to have said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Through the ministry of John Knox, The church in Scotland was reformed, and the country was revived. And further, John Knox founded the Presbyterian denomination in Scotland. So Presbyterianism owes its very existence to the ministries of these two men, John Calvin and John Knox. Eventually, Presbyterianism would spread to America and continue to have significant influence here, as did other Protestant denominations. Now I want to fast forward to more recent times. Today in America, there is not just one Presbyterian denomination, there are several. But the largest Presbyterian denomination in America is called the Presbyterian Church USA. It is called PCUSA. It has approximately 2 million members, and there are approximately 10,000 local churches. And last summer, the PCUSA was working on their new hymnal. And they made the decision to leave out the hymn in Christ alone because of one word, the word wrath. 
In a line from the third stanza, it reads, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That is a faithful, true statement about the death of Christ. What did it achieve? It appeased the wrath of God in the place of guilty sinners. We sing that here. We glory in that here. We delight in that glorious gospel truth here. We praise God for that line. But the PC USA asked permission from the Gettys who wrote the song if they could take that line out and replace it with this line As Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That's an accurate statement, an accurate thing to sing. But what they are doing is trying to replace that with. The wrath of God. The Gettys insisted on the original wording. Thank God for that. So the PCUSA chose not to include that hymn in their hymnal because they cannot tolerate the notion of the wrath of God. More recently, just last month, in their 221st General Assembly, the decision was made that clergy within the PCUSA are now free to perform, listen to this, same-sex weddings. What an unbelievable tragedy. Let me translate this for you. The PCUSA is apostate. Apostate. The largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States of America has abandoned God, abandoned his word, abandoned the gospel. If the motto of the reformers was after darkness light, the motto of the PCUSA is a complete reversal after light darkness. Frankly, it is mind-blowing how far the PCUSA has moved away from the biblically faithful teaching of its founders, John Calvin and John Knox. Now, beloved, I share this with you to illustrate a very important principle, and that is this. Within the visible church, there is the tendency to drift away from the truth. Within the visible church, there is the tendency to drift away from the truth. History bears this out, whether it is Christian educational institutions like Harvard University or Princeton University, or whether it is Christian denominations like the PCUSA, or whether it is local churches. There is the tendency to drift away from the truth of God by becoming more influenced by the world than by the word of God. With that said, I now want to draw your attention to the text that God has for us this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. As we have said many times now, this is Paul's final climactic charge to Timothy. As Paul is facing imminent martyrdom, and as he concludes his final letter to Timothy, he defines in no uncertain terms the main thing that Timothy is to pursue as a man of God, as a man in Christian ministry. Namely, he is to preach the word. This, more than anything else, defines what he is to do as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an overseer, as an elder in the church of God. In this passage, Paul gives principles for faithful preaching. If you'll look on your sermon notes, you will notice I've listed them there for you. Number one is the solemnity of preaching in verse 1. Number two is the biblical content of preaching in verse 2. We've looked at these already. 
If the preacher is going to be faithful, he must have the right attitude and he must have the right content in his preaching. He must view preaching with a sense of fear and trembling in the presence of God, and he must also preach the word without alteration and without compromise. Now we come to the third principle that Paul gives to Timothy for faithful preaching, and that is a very sobering principle, Roman numeral 3, the opposition to preaching in verses 3 and 4. Now I wish I could say that for every preacher who faithfully preaches the word of God, that everyone in the visible church would thank God for him, that everyone in the visible church would love him, that everyone in the visible church would love his preaching. But unfortunately, that is not the world in which we live. So there is a very harsh reality that Timothy must come to grips with A harsh reality that he must expect in his ministry along with every other faithful preacher of the word of God. And that is this, when the preacher faithfully preaches the word, not everyone is going to like it. Not everyone is going to love it. Not everybody is going to appreciate that. In fact, some will oppose him. Not so much because they oppose him, not so much because they dislike him, but because they oppose what he preaches. They do not like his message. And so as Timothy reads verses 3 and 4 for the first time, it's as if Paul is saying, Listen, Timothy, you are commanded by God to preach the word, but as you do so, you'd better brace yourself. Because as you endeavor to faithfully preach the word of God, you are going to be opposed, even in the church. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That is a very sad statement. I wish it weren't so. I wish it weren't in the Bible. But it's here. Paul, in writing verses 3 and 4, presents a very grim picture of the visible church. This is not a description of the world in general. It is a picture of Christendom. The they of whom Paul writes in verse 3 are professing Christians who make up the visible church. And beloved, what we have here is what I would call a prophetic warning. Paul is giving a warning, and it is also a prophecy of what will come. He says, for the time will come, that is a future tense. This is what Timothy must expect. This is what he must anticipate. This is what he must come to grips with. Timothy, be warned, be prepared, because this is what is going to happen in your ministry and in every other ministry of every other faithful man of God. It's a prophetic warning. For the time will come, it is a certainty, when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
This is a specific example of the warning that he gave earlier in chapter 3 and verse 1. Be reminded, if you would, back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days, and remember what the last days are, that period of time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, we are now in the last days. And what will mark the last days? Difficult times will come. It is another prophetic warning. It is a prophecy by Paul. And as he goes through chapter 3, he outlines what, is, what he means by difficult times. And what he means by that is apostasy, false teachers, false teaching, and persecution. And beloved, that is what has marked 2,000 years of church history in large measure. Apostasy, false teachers, false teaching, and persecution. It's what marks the church even now. So Timothy, you must realize that you are living in difficult times. The Christian life and the Christian ministry are not going to be easy because, again, this is an age of apostasy. It is an age of false teachers, and it is an age of persecution. And therefore, as Paul says in chapter 3, as we spent a number of weeks on, Timothy must learn how to stand firm in difficult times. And now in chapter 4, he must learn to preach in difficult times. It's not easy, the times in which we live. Now please notice that verse 3, going back to chapter 4 now, how in verse 3 Paul begins with the word for. There is no such thing as a meaningless word in the Bible, especially the word for. It is a connector. It is a term of explanation this continues the thought of verse 2, and it explains in part why Paul commands Timothy to preach the word. Preach the word, verse 2, verse 3, 4. And then he gives the explanation. This is certainly not the first time that Timothy heard these things from Paul. I believe everything in this letter is a reminder that Timothy has no doubt heard, not just once, but probably many times from the lips of Paul. But Paul reminds him here of his responsibility to preach the word. Why? Because in the face of opposition, it will be a very real temptation for Timothy to shrink back in his preaching. I mean, that's the natural tendency, isn't it? When we feel the weight of persecution, when we feel the weight of opposition, what is the natural inclination but to shrink, to back down? This is something that Timothy must never do if he is to be faithful. In verse 2, Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word out of season. And this is certainly an example of what it means to preach out of season. Now listen very carefully. Preaching the word of God to a people reveals the true spiritual condition of that people, of those who listen. In the church, there are going to be those who are genuinely converted, those who truly have a love for God, and therefore those who have a true love for the preaching of the Word of God. But also within that same body, within the visible church, there are going to be those who are not converted, who are lost church members, who do not love God, who do not have a desire to submit to the authority of God, who delight in God. 
And therefore neither will they have a desire and a love for the proclamation of God's word. Some of these unconverted church members will respond to the preaching of God's word with indifference, with apathy. But then others will respond very differently with hostility and with opposition to the preacher. And this is what Timothy must expect. So Timothy, when you preach the word, there are going to be some who will not endure sound doctrine. That term sound doctrine is a very common term, especially in the pastoral epistles. Here in 2 Timothy, it is a synonym for the word in verse 2. It is a synonym for a scripture that Paul uses in 3.16. Simply another term for the Bible. Tragically, there are many local churches and even whole entire denominations that will tolerate just about anything except sound doctrine. It is not difficult at all to discover that you can find churches very, very easily, even in our area, that will tolerate false teaching. They will tolerate immorality. They will tolerate worldliness. They will tolerate many different expressions of sin. But they will not tolerate one thing. That is sound doctrine, truth. Why? They don't love God. They don't love his word. They have no fear of God, no reverence for his word, no appetite for the word of God. It's intolerable to them. This kind of attitude towards sound doctrine dominates the spiritual landscape in our day. In fact, it seems that the number of churches which do not endure sound doctrine outnumber those that love sound doctrine. Truth is usually with the minority. Listen to Steve Lawson, who is one of the greatest expository preachers in our day. Here's what he says about our times. Quote, biblical preaching is being displaced in favor of other things. Exposition, once the main staple of the pulpit, is now being replaced with entertainment. Theology is giving way to theatrics. Sound doctrine is being exchanged for sound checks. And the unfolding drama of redemption is being substituted for just plain drama. God-exalting, soul-awakening preaching is now out, and casual, comfortable dialogues are in. Transcendent worship services are out, and trendy hip-hop gatherings are in. And the straightforward exposition of Scripture is being demoted to secondary status. End quote. No one can argue against that. That is reality. I don't feel good in saying it, but it is reality. It is the times in which we live, it is the culture in the church of America of which we are a part. But if you look very carefully there back at the text in 2 Timothy 4, it is very interesting to note that it is not preaching altogether that they will reject. It is a certain kind of preaching. It is the preaching of sound doctrine that they don't want. Instead of sound doctrine, they will want a different kind of preaching, a different kind of message. Look at what he says in verse 3, but wanting to have their ears tickled. 
It's a strong contrast to the opening part of verse 3. The problem here, beloved, is not a legitimate difference in style of preaching. That's not what is at play here. The problem with these people of whom Paul writes is with their wants. They do not want sound doctrine. They will not tolerate sound doctrine. Instead, what do they want in the message? What do they want from the pulpit? They want their ears to be tickled. That is to say, they still want preaching. They still want a message. They still want somebody to speak to them. But they do not want sound doctrine. So the problem is not a difference in styles. The problem is with their true spiritual condition. They do not want God. They do not want his word. They do not want to be rebuked. They do not want to be reproved. They do not want to be exhorted. They do not want to be instructed in the word of God, all of which are God's intended purposes for preaching, as we saw in verse 2. Preaching sound doctrine brings the mind of God and the will of God before the people. But when the people do not love God, they do not want the mind of God. They do not want the will of God. They will not love that kind of preaching. Instead, they will want their ears to be tickled. They cannot endure sound doctrine because they are carnal men and women who want a carnal Christianity with carnal sermons in carnal churches and carnal denominations. They want ear-tickling sermons instead of sound doctrinal sermons because they, again, do not want God. Many of you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is. He was a tremendous preacher from London who died in 1981. Before he was a preacher, he was a physician. And concerning his work as a physician, he said, and this is very important, that he never let the preacher prescribe the medication. And that seems obvious. If you're the doctor, you're the one who is the expert in your field. You don't allow the patient to come in and dictate what medicine he or she needs. That is the doctor's job. And the same is true of preaching. You never let carnal men and women dictate the terms of what is to be preached. They are not the ones who are to prescribe what is to be preached. The preacher prescribes the preaching as a man under the authority of God and as under the divine mandate to preach the word. This is the kind of preaching that God calls for, that God commands, that God wants, but it will not be the kind of preaching that many people in the visible church want. John MacArthur says the preacher who brings the message people most need to hear will often be the preacher they least like to hear. Not that guy again. It's kind of the thought that people have. But this is nothing new. The rejection of God's word by those who claim to be his people wasn't even new in Timothy's day. I want you to hold your spot in 2 Timothy and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31, and this is really one of the saddest statements in the Old Testament about apostate Israel. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He wept over the sin of his people, the judgment that their sin would 
produce against them by God. And I want you to see what he says was happening in Israel at that time. It wasn't just corruption among the people. It was absolute corruption among the leadership of the people. He says in Jeremiah 5.30, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. I mean, that is serious language. An appalling thing, a horrible thing has happened in the land of Israel. What is it, Jeremiah? Verse 31, The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule on their own authority. Corrupt leadership from top to bottom. The prophets are liars. The priests are corrupt. And notice what the people do. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? This corruption within the priesthood and among the prophets and among the people, it is going to produce the heavy consequences of God's judgment. And what are you going to do in the end? What an indicting statement. I wish that weren't there. But it is. Because that was the reality of Israel. And as you move into the New Testament, turn to Matthew 5 with me to a very familiar verse, one of the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus. This is how he begins his Sermon on the Mount. He is describing the character of those who are true citizens of his kingdom. Each beatitude gives a characteristic of those who are genuine followers of his. And the final beatitude is very, very stout. It has to do with persecution. One of the marks of a true Christian is that you are the kind of person who receives persecution from the world. Look at verse 10, Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he's going to repeat this, the only beatitude that he mentions twice, because I believe this is such a difficult reality to embrace. So he doubles up, if you will. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. I mean, who would expect Jesus to say that? Rejoice and be glad when people lie about you and insult you and persecute you. And look what he says next. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are persecuted as a disciple of Christ, you can rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. And also know that what you are experiencing is the exact same thing that the true prophets of God have always experienced. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, persecuted terribly within Israel. Isaiah, the majestic prophet of the Old Testament, tradition says he was running for his life, crawled into a hollowed-out tree, and it was sawn in two with him inside of it. Just two examples of what the people of God, Israel, did to their prophets. Continuing with, with this thought, look at Matthew 23. This is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, Statements that Jesus ever made in the New Testament regarding the corruption of Israel, the apostasy of Israel. He pronounces woes upon them because of their massive hypocrisy, their massive defection from the truth. 
Matthew 23, 29, look at what he says. Woe to you, that means damned are you, cursed are you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, Jesus calls them all manner of names in Matthew 23. Hypocrites, you pretend to love God, but you are actors. You do not really love God. You are hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. They celebrate their heritage. We love our prophets. We love all of the righteous men in our history, and we build monuments to them to show how much we love them. All of that is a show. It's all hypocrisy, Jesus says. He exposes them. Verse 30, here's what they say. If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We would have done things different had we been there. Verse 31, so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. What is he saying? He's saying to them, kill me. He knows that's their intent, and what that will do is simply continue the line of murdering the prophets of God. To the greatest degree, Jesus, who is not only the chief prophet, but the one who is the Messiah, whom they will murder this week. Fill up your guilt, he says, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, verse 33, you brood of vipers. He calls them names. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Imagine telling the most conservative religious leaders of Israel they are damned to hell, and that is what Jesus preached. No equivocation. Verse 34, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he laments in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. This is a prophecy that would be fulfilled about 40 years later, 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans, whom would be the instrument of God's judgment. So, beloved, the history of Israel is a history of persecuting God's prophets. If you are faithful to preach God's message, listen, there is a price to pay. It may even cost you your life. So what is the faithful preacher supposed to do when people oppose his preaching? Should he change his message? Should he cater to the appetites of the people? What's the answer? Never. With a thousand exclamation marks. He must continue to preach the word of God even when it is out of season and even if it causes him to suffer. Charles Simeon may not be somebody that you are familiar with. He was the pastor of the same church for 54 years in Cambridge, England in the 1800s. 
He was a faithful preacher who described his rule for preaching in this way, and I quote, to endeavor to give to every portion of the word of God its full and proper force. My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. What a tremendous view of preaching. I don't want to say more or less than what the Word of God says. And my only goal in preaching is to rightly communicate what God has revealed and said in His Word. So here is Charles Simeon's view of preaching. This is what he did for 54 years. But listen to this. For the first 12 years of his ministry, there was so much opposition against him from within his congregation that certain people from the church literally locked the pews so that nobody could sit down and listen to him preach. That was a time where the pews had little doors on the ends, and they were locked by certain members of the church. And so if anybody wanted to listen to Charles Simeon, the pastor of that church preach, you had to stand wherever you could in the church, and you couldn't sit down. So what did he do? Did he stop preaching? Did he change his message to make his detractors happy? No. He kept right on preaching the word of God, and those who wanted to listen to the word of God simply had to stand. And they did. And that is a remarkable example of perseverance in preaching 12 years of that kind of opposition to Charles Simeon. Now back to our text, Paul continues his prophetic warning. He says this, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Here's the pattern. Carnal church members will not want a preacher like Paul. They will not want a preacher like Timothy who will preach the word. Instead, what kind of preacher will they want? A carnal preacher. That's what they want. One who submits to them, one who doesn't submit to God. One who gives them what they want instead of what God commands. One who will preach man-centered messages, one that will tickle their ears instead of straightforward, verse-by-verse exposition of God's word. You'll note that their standard of measure for the preacher, this is basically the criteria for what they are looking for in a preacher, is their own sinful desires. One that will cater to us, one that will allow us to live comfortably in our defiance of God. One that will not confront our worldliness, one that will not rebuke us with the truth, one that will allow us to live comfortably. Paul continues in verse 4, further describing these people within the visible church and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Unbelievable. This is basically a repeat of verse 3. You'll notice he mentions their ears for a second time. Again, it's all about the message being communicated to them, what they want to hear. In verse 3, Paul says, they will not endure sound doctrine. And now in verse 4, they will turn away their ears from the truth. And it's as if they put their fingers in their ears. They have no desire for the truth of God 
to be proclaimed and to enter into their ears. They will deliberately reject the truth and in its place they will turn aside to myths. What is a myth? Something that's not true. It's the opposite of the truth. When a people turn away from God's truth, guess what kind of world they live in? They live in a world of fiction. They live in a fantasy land. They live in a world of unreality. It is the truth of God that defines reality. And anything that is contrary to it is by very definition a myth. So, for example, when the PCUSA turns away from the truth of God's wrath and the truth of exclusive marriage between a man and a woman, it turned aside to myths. They are one illustration of what Paul is warning about here. When they turn their ears away from the truth of God's word, they turn to a world of make-believe, a world where God has no wrath against sin, a world in which Jesus did not absorb the wrath of God in his body on the cross because of our sins, and a world where same-sex marriage is valid. That is a world of myths. It is not reality. It is all a lie. And so as I stated in the introduction within the visible church, beloved, there is the tendency to drift away from the truth. History bears this out vividly. This is what we see, not just throughout history, but even in our own time. But as the people of God, we must resist this tendency with all of our might, and we must hold fast to the truth, and to sound doctrine. Now, to gain a larger perspective, if you will, of 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, there are two overarching warnings that Paul gives to us that we need to take heed to. The first is to the preacher. The preacher must be careful how he preaches. The second warning is to the people. The people must be careful how they listen. Two warnings. The preacher will give an account to God for how he preaches. And the people will give an account to God for how they listen. The preacher will be judged according to whether or not he was faithful to preach the word of God without alteration and without compromise. And the people will be judged according to whether or not they submitted to the word. So let me ask you. When you hear the word of God proclaimed whether here or wherever it might be, do you hear it and walk away from it? Or do you hear it and obey it? Submit to it. My divine mandate is to be an expository preaching preacher and your mandate is to be an expository listener to listen to the word of God carefully and to practice the word of God may God help us to do this
And may God help us to always hold firmly to his truth. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, even when we hear things that are negative and harsh, even when we hear things that are very sad, we know that this is your truth. You have revealed it, and we are to understand it. Father, we thank you for the many faithful preachers who have gone before us, like Paul and like Timothy and like Charles Simeon, who have not caved in to the pressure of opposition, but have stood firm in your truth and who accepted suffering as a consequence for their faithfulness. We thank you for Jesus as the greatest preacher of them all and how strong and how faithful he was in his preaching and how he never shrank from the truth for fear of opposition. Father, may you help us in this church to remain faithful in how we handle your word, how we view your word. Father, may you make all of us increasingly to be the kind of people who are not only eager to hear your truth proclaimed, but who are just as eager to practice your word, to conform our lives to your word. And Father, we do pray for revival and reformation in our own land. Lord, I pray, we pray that you would put into the hearts of preachers this conviction to preach your word, to be faithful in that responsibility, and that you would purify your church, reform your church with your truth. And we pray specifically for the PCUSA, which we've already cited a number of times, that you would grant repentance to the many people who lead that denomination and who are in that denomination. Father, we long for the day when all of this opposition against you is gone and where righteousness reigns. And with that, we long for the return of Christ. And we thank you, O oh God, that again, as we prayed earlier today, that we are members of your kingdom and we will be with you when you establish your kingdom. We love you and we anticipate the wonderful things that you have planned for us and for your glory that lie ahead of us. But until then, help us to be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name.